How are we feeling? How are we doing? Good. All right. So we are, we're in the last week of the Sermon on the Mount series. Man, eight years I think we've been in this thing at this point. Oh. Uh, not really. But today we're looking at how Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount. And we see again this, this two ways or two paths tradition that we talked about last week, which is a way of teaching that was common in ancient Judaism, um, where you kind of teach by contrasting two different ways. So we saw that Jesus, his first contrast, he contrasted the, the, uh, the narrow hard road that leads to life and the wide easy road that leads to destruction. And then in contrast, the true, the true prophets and the false prophets, right? True prophets are the one who encourage, the ones who encourage people to be on that hard, narrow road, where the false prophets kind of lure people over that wide, easy road. So today we're going to see that Jesus contrasts a wise builder and a foolish builder. Jesus is going to talk about houses. And so I want you to stop and think about the house you live in. Okay? If I asked you to describe your house to me, you would probably most likely tell me about like the location, uh, the color, the design, the square footage, the number of bedrooms. But you probably wouldn't be like, well, first of all, let me tell you about the foundation. You should see the foundation on my house. Really strong foundation. You might not know anything about your foundation. Yet it is the foundation of your house that can make all the difference. So let's see what Jesus says about this. Matthew 7. 24 through 29. He starts, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, hears or reads the Sermon on the Mount, and puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the floodwaters rose, and the winds beat, blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the floodwaters rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he had taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So we see the, the two ways here. We have, you have someone who heard the teaching of Jesus and put it into practice, and you have someone who heard the teaching of Jesus and did not put it into practice. So Jesus' message here as he finishes the Sermon on the Mount is, it's not enough to just hear all this information. In the end, you have to go and do something about it. You have to put it into practice. Work it into your everyday life. You have to let it transform you. And to drive his point home, Jesus tells a parable or a story about life in the kingdom. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the, on the rock. But anyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them in, into practice, doesn't do anything with them, doesn't obey them, doesn't live them out, is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. So how many of you grew up in church? Most, a lot of you. All right. How many of you are old enough to remember the flannel graph? Not so many. Okay. I, I think the flannel graph is going to make a comeback. But, I mean, analog's coming back. You've got instant cameras, you've got record players. I think the time is right for a flannel graph resurgence. But that's a good business idea. But those who remember the original flannel graph, when you hear the Sermon on the Mount, you may be at a bit of a disadvantage because you've heard Jesus' teaching a thousand times. And familiarity, it doesn't always breed contempt, but usually does breed 
indifference and apathy. And so as we work through this, let Jesus kind of grab hold of your heart all over again. Because, because this is not a cute Sunday school flannel graph story. This is a weighty, profound teaching by Jesus. It's a parable about two, these two home builders, one wise and the other foolish. And the word wise is phronomos in Greek, which can be translated smart or intelligent or thoughtful or enlightened. The foolish, on the other hand, is moros. So where we get the word, anybody have a guess? Moron, right? True story. And it, be, it can be translated stupid or unintelligent or not thoughtful or unenlightened. Meaning in Greek and in Jesus' worldview, these aren't moral words. These are mental words. So Dale Bruner, New Testament scholar, put it this way. Jesus does not contrast good and bad in this parable, but thoughtful and foolish. I'm going to say it one more time because I think this is so important. Jesus isn't saying you got one immoral guy who built his house on sand and one super moral guy who built on rock. He's saying the difference between these two guys is one was smart and one did what Jesus taught and the other was stupid and didn't do what Jesus taught. There is an intelligence in the way of Jesus. This is not something that the church talks about much. But I think this is an idea that we need to get back to in our day and age. Why? Well, because all the data is in. Human beings are not nearly as rational as we would like to think, or we were led to believe by the Enlightenment. Test after test shows that humans continually misjudge what makes them happy and fulfilled. We don't like to hear that. But our vision of reality is not 2020. Our vision of a good, full, abundant life is not very clear. Our minds are corrupted by sin, not just our bodies. Now, in Jesus' day, it was the same. In somebody who actually thought well and deeply about how to follow Jesus, now to incorporate their teaching, his teachings into their life, and live a good life was called a phronomous man or woman, a wise man or woman. And somebody who just was not very thoughtful, somebody who just kind of went around with what Socrates might call an unexamined life, just being led by their desires, was not thoughtful, was called a fool. So think about the book of Proverbs, where there's a similar parable, but it's a woman. Wisdom is personified as a woman, obviously. And we have this beautiful parable about how with wisdom a woman builds her house, but with foolishness the woman tears down her house with her own hands. So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is using this language out of the Hebrew wisdom literature and tradition. And the point is that, Jesus is kind of tapping into this ongoing conversation of the day about who is wise and who's a fool, who's thoughtful and who's unenlightened. And he does this with these, about this, this parable of the two home builders. And in Jesus' day, a home was a common metaphor for your life. Okay? Because in those days, like we do, you lived and slept and ate and relaxed in your home, but also you ran your business out of your home. So as a farmer a merchant, a fisherman, or a woman, whatever you made your living from, you ran out of your home. So your home came to symbolize your life as a whole. Now Jesus says the wise person, the smart, intelligent, thoughtful person, builds the house of their life on the foundation or the bedrock of practicing his teaching, as laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. The foolish person, who's just not that sharp yet, hasn't really thought much about life, isn't that enlightened. Here's all of Jesus' teachings. May like it, 
may not like it, but just kind of doesn't do anything about it. Builds their house on a shaky foundation. And notice that Jesus doesn't say why. Maybe they're just too busy. Maybe they're tired or worn out. Maybe they're just dealing with trauma from the past. Maybe they prefer another teacher or another way of life to Jesus and his way of life. Jesus doesn't say. He lets you find yourself in the story. Are you the wise man or are you the fool? Are you somewhere in the middle? A little bit of both. Where are you at? <clears throat> he lets you just kind of imagine for yourself and fill in the blanks. <clears throat> me. Now here's the terrifying thing about this parable. In the short run, you can't tell the difference between those who practice Jesus' teaching, house on a rock, and those who don't, house on the sand. From a distance, they look exactly the same. Until the flood comes. Until the moment of truth, the two houses look exactly alike to the naked eye. What's visible looks the same. It's only what's hidden that makes a difference. This imagery of the flood comes right out of Jesus' worldview as well. Galilee, Galilee was and still is a dry, arid place. And because of that, large rains can cause these flash floods out of the blue that are quite dangerous. This was a regular, ongoing problem. And he uses this as a word picture for some kind of hardship in your life. A diagnosis. A tragedy. The loss of a loved one. Unemployment. The, the death of a dream. Bad news. Some kind of catastrophe. And notice... He doesn't say if the flood comes, but when the flood comes, right? The flood will come. One of my favorite things about Jesus is he is brutally honest about the human experience on planet Earth. In a day and age of self-help, I like that Jesus is just honest that life is sometimes hard. Whether you follow him or not. And the wise and the foolish both go through the same storm. Those that build their life on practicing the way of Jesus, and those that do not build a life on practicing the way of Jesus, both go through the flood. I, for one, find that re very refreshing. One, because it's honest. Two, because I think it rings true to the human experience. And three, ironically, when you expect life to be easy, and then it's not, it actually is way harder, isn't it? So we see Jesus, he's so honest that his way does not lead you out of hardship, but through hardship. This rise of kind of the self-helpy, feel-good prosperity gospel in the Western church is not in line with the historic Orthodox way of Jesus. And I think it is a crisis of faith waiting to happen for a lot of people. Because the flood will come. And whatever it is, major or minor, it will shake the house of your life to the core. And it will reveal what your life is actually built on. And it will be either one of the best moments of your life or one of the worst moments of your life. If your life is built on greed or materialism or climbing some ladder or it's built around sex or being healthy or youth or beauty or whatever it is, it's built on popularity or pleasure or another person or autonomy, whatever, rather than built on the way of Jesus and life with Jesus, then the flood, whatever it is for you and me, it will reveal the foundation that your life is built on. And if your life is built on anything other than Jesus and His will and way, it will, quote, fall with a great crash. 
I'm guessing we've all had front row seats to watching somebody's life implode. And it's not always a blow up. Sometimes it's just kind of the slow unraveling, right? A cumulative effect of life of a life not built around the way of Jesus that finally starts to catch up to somebody. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.24, Some people's sins are obvious, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others surface later. Some people from a distance, they have a very nice looking home, but the foundation is off, and you can't see it. But time will tell. It's a sobering warning from Jesus. This should, this should scare us a little bit. And not in the sense of like anxiety or paranoia, or you know, that kind of unhealthy fear, but a right, healthy, smart, emotional response to the reality of the way the world is. This warning from Jesus should wake us up, should break us out of apathy, should get, should get us to ask some hard, probing questions of our own life. And to take a long, hard look at the reality of our obedience or lack thereof to Jesus in his way. You know, we live, in a, we live in a day and age where we have more information than ever before. We often feel overwhelmed by all the information. And we're used to hearing information and even being moved by it. And then, doing nothing about it. This is why Neil Postman says that many people in this cultural moment are what he calls liars, L-I-A-R. We have a low information to action ratio. And so Jesus here is giving us a much-needed wake-up call that information alone does not equal transformation. Because knowing something is not the same as wanting to do it, which is not the same as doing it. And Jesus is not teaching an ideology. It's not just like a set of ideas that you ascribe to or ascend to in your head. Jesus is teaching a way of life. It's a mind and body. It's rhythm and routine, right? It's thought, life, and action. Jesus' end goal isn't to inform you. It's to transform you into somebody who's like him. And in doing so, into your real true self. And that takes more than information. In fact, Jesus begins and ends the Sermon of the Mount with, with, with this idea of practice. Back in Matthew 5, he says, Whoever practices and teaching these command, teaches these commands will be great in the kingdom of heaven. And then what's the very last thing he says at the end? Whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into what? Into practice, you're wise. Whoever hears these words and does not put them into practice, not so much. So Jesus begins and he ends the Sermon on the Mount with this idea of practice. Life in the kingdom of God will take practice. You don't just read like, do not worry and be like, oh cool, I'll stop doing that. You don't just hear, don't look lustfully at a woman and go, yeah, all right, that's lame, done. And sadly, a, a lot of the Western church thinks that's how transformation happens. That the formula for change is information plus willpower equals change. That's a false formula. That isn't how it works. Like here, I'll prove it to you. How many of you have heard that you were supposed to floss daily or you heard that you were supposed to drink a certain amount of water every day to stay hydrated? And so you got that information... Good. Then you worked up some willpower to try and do that. I'm going to floss daily. Drink eight glasses of water a day, whatever it is. How many of you had the information, worked up the willpower to try to make that kind of change, and it only lasted for a couple of days? Anybody? My hand's up. 
Okay, so we can't even get that formula to work on floss. <laughs> Much less on anxiety or lust or greed or contentment or life. And willpower is great, but my point is real transformation into the way of Jesus takes a life of practice. And not just practice, community. And so again, this is lost in the translation of much of the Bible, but we don't have a plural you unless you're from the South. Y'all. In Greek, there's a singular and a plural you. And pretty much every single you in the Sermon on the Mount, and really in the New Testament, is plural. You are the light of the world. You as in the upper room fellowship are the light of the world. Meaning Jesus assumes, one, this will take a lifetime of practice, and two, this will take a community to pull it off. Not you by your lonesome. And also, you're going to need the Holy Spirit. You need access to a person and a power and a presence that is beyond you to help you, to change you from the inside out, to live out this life. I'm a Bible teacher, and here's what I know. Bible teaching does not necessarily transform people by itself. Bible teaching is important, yes. But I know a whole, a whole lot of people who have been around the church or have gone to church every single Sunday for decades who, knew, who know the Bible really well and are still mean or are still driven by a father wound or getting identity or accomplishment or, you know, they're, they're getting their identity from accomplishment or accumulation rather than the love of the Father in heaven. Who are still not present to God or to their own soul. Or still not self-aware. They're not open and honest about their junk and their sins, dealing with them with humility and vulnerability. But they know Romans real good. I'm all for Romans. If I'm ever smart, I'm not smart enough, I might try to teach it, but... Knowing Romans is not the same thing as living the way of Jesus. You know, some people undervalue the Sunday gathering. They don't think they need it, right? But I think some other people overestimate the capacity of a Sunday gathering to transform you to the level that you want or equal. And the reality is Jesus won't do it all in an hour and a half on a Sunday morning with little or no partnership from you. He created you as free, intelligent beings that have a will that is the center of your person, shaped by God himself. And he wants to join with you and your community by the Holy Spirit to cultivate that and to shape you or reshape you. And that's going to take more than Sunday morning church attendance, which is a good and powerful thing, but it'll take more. So, here, so here's maybe the question today. Here's where I think... Here's where I think the process of change into the way of Jesus usually begins. Is there something that the Spirit of God has moved you toward that you have yet to act on? This is my first question to people who feel stalled or stuck in their discipleship to Jesus. Was there something that God told you to do a day ago, a week ago, a decade ago, and you have yet to act on it? Is there something that the Spirit of God has spoken to you or impressed upon you in a time of prayer, at church, or on your morning commute? At some point, something came to mind that you felt was from the Holy Spirit. 
Make restitution to that person. Apologize to that person. Confess that sin. Talk to somebody about that. I don't know what it is, but is there something there in your mind? Have you done anything with it? Or is it an empty idea that you're inspired by? Jesus is saying here, have the courage and faith to do it. Put it into practice. We are formed by teaching, by practice, which would include the disciplines, right? Bible reading, prayer, Sabbath, fasting, those sorts of things. By community and by the Holy Spirit. Those four things move us into or keep us in the way of Jesus. And I, and I want to say this. The reality is that living out, putting into practice the teachings of Jesus is the only way that we offer legitimacy to what we say we believe. By demonstrating it. This is how we avoid that label of hypocrite that Jesus warns about in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is our greatest tool for cultural change. Isaiah 42, 6-7, is God calling Jesus to lead the people in a way of life. And it says this, I, the Lord, have called you to demonstrate my righteousness. And you will be a light to guide the nations. You will open the eyes of the blind. You will free the captives from prison. Release all those who sit in darkness. As Jesus guides us, we demonstrate his righteousness. We put his way into practice. That leads to opening the eyes of the blind, freeing the captives, releasing those who sit in darkness. Does the world need some of that right now? David Fitch said, we need a renewal of the local church as God's agent for transformation of people's lives and social realities under the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. We need a renewal of the local church to be the people God is calling us to be, his agents of transformation. All right. We good? All right. Kind of quiet. Let's look at verse 28. Verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not their teachers of, not as their teachers of the law. So the style of rabbis in the day of Jesus, days of Jesus, was to quote another rabbi who came before you. That was where the, your authority came from from the rabbi who came before you. So, oh, rabbi so-and-so said this, that, and the other. Jesus did not do that once. You never read a story about Jesus saying, well, rabbi so-and-so said anything. Jesus would just stand up and say, truly I tell you, boom, truth bomb. He would just put language to the way life actually works. He would paint a picture with words of, of reality that would just ring true to people. Now, the word for that, or the label for that, kind of resonance with reality and truth is authority. And we're, we're pretty adverse to authority in our culture. But we forget that Jesus' authority was not rooted in, in a title or a hierarchy or some oppressive system. His authority was rooted in the truth of his words and, and the credentials that he had and his power. In the truth of his life example. I love Eugene Peterson's translation of Matthew 7.29. The last line, he said, it was apparent that he was living everything he was saying. That's the most potent kind of spiritual authority. 
because it has nothing to do with who you studied under or what degree you have or who any or who what says about you. When you stand up educated or un- uneducated and you speak truth and it corresponds to reality and it corresponds to your own life, there's an authority, a weight that goes with it. And Jesus had that authority. And actually, it's easy to miss, but Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is claiming that he is more than just the conduit for truth. He's claiming that he is the source of truth himself. Some of Jesus' most blatant claims to be the embodiment of God himself, both God and man in the same body and mind, are actually right here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He makes all sorts of claims. He claims that he is the gate. His teachings and his teachings is the way to life forever. He claims that on Judgment Day, people will say to him, Lord, Lord. He claims that on Judgment Day, people who don't know Him, not in relationship with Him, will be sent away from Him. He says people will work miracles, prophesy, cast out demons, all in His name. Then he has this, this audacity to claim that His teaching is the foundation to build your life on. No rabbi had ever said that before. It was common to say that the Torah was the foundation of a life. But Jesus would say over and over again, you heard, that it was, you heard it that way, right? But I tell you this way. He's saying my teaching is even more important than the Torah. My teaching is my way of life, and my way is the foundation to build your life upon. That is delusional megalomania. Unless you were God and humanity in the same mind and body. Unless your authority was rooted in the fact that you were the one who set the cosmos in motion. Who designed and understands and loves humanity. Who knows better than anybody how human beings are to flourish and thrive. Your house is your life. Everybody builds a life. You can't not. The question isn't, are you building a life? It's, what what are you building your life on? Underneath all the distraction in the day-to-day, What's the bedrock of your life built on? Is it Jesus in his way, in community, and empowered by the Holy Spirit? Or is it something or somebody else that will not survive the storm and flood when it inevitably comes? Jesus here, he he ends the greatest teaching in all of of human history, not really the way you're supposed to end a sermon. He ends not with a pep talk, right? Not with like a rah-rah, go and change the world. Not with a funny story and a laugh. He ends up with a sober, weighty, probing question for you to ask yourself. Where are you putting your faith? What are you building your life on? You know, we started the series back in October of last year asking the question, why should we listen to Jesus in the first place? Why would you trust Jesus more than any other person who's got opinions on matters of life? What warrants that kind of commitment? And the answer I'm going to give this morning is the same one I gave back then. That Jesus alone, of all the folks in the world throughout history, Jesus alone has the credentials and the authority to claim that he is the expert of all experts in the area of life's biggest questions. Paul goes so far as to say in Colossians chapter 2 that all the treasures of God's wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. That's why when people say, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor, love your enemies, store up treasures in heaven rather than on earth, do not worry, 
Give, pray, fast. Do not judge others. Watch out for false prophets. Ask and seek and knock for God's blessing. Take up your cross and follow me. It's better to serve than it is to be served. Take the narrow path rather than the broad road if you want to live a full life. When Jesus says these things, if we're wise, we're going to do our best to listen and practice those things. Take what he says and apply it to your life. Amen. Thank you, Chris. How many of you have appreciated this uh, series on the Sermon on the Mount? Thank you, Chris. I know that was a lot of work, a lot of study, a lot of soul searching. How many of you have been inspired along the way in these past eight months somewhere something hit you somewhere yeah yeah there's there's one thing about inspiration um and i i love it when i get when i'm inspired and you know get a revelation and you know something hits me in a new way, if you just feel like God is revealing something that you hadn't seen before, and you know it might be a scripture you've read, you know, hundreds of times, and and then suddenly the light is shined on it, and and I just love those moments. But the danger is we can feel like inspiration is the transformation, and we don't actually carry that seed to the fullness to have our lives changed. And so we kind of, you know, we're boosted, we have this high, we, we uh, you know, are enthused and inspired, and yet we don't take the next step and do the work that it takes to make that rea a reality in our lives. And that's kind of what Jesus is talking about here. Um, you know, how's our foundation? Are, are we on on the rock? Have we built in such a way that we're going to stand the storms. and So I, I just want to pose that question here. Uh, let's have the ministry team come up. And um, I just want us to sit before the Lord here for a few moments and just ask that question. Lord, what have you revealed to me that I haven't done anything about? <laughs> and let's have that be a real question to our hearts, our souls, and one we ask honestly. And, you know, if we, if we really want to follow Jesus to be his disciple, then we need to take the next step. And as Chris pointed out, you know, it's not, it's not the hearing that makes us different or makes us new but it's the, the doing. It's a lot easier to hear. <laughs> so Lord, we just, just put ourselves before you, Lord. First of all, we want to just say thanks that you are 
that your words can be trusted. Lord, that heaven and earth will pass away before one of your words pass away. Lord, that you are a secure and trustworthy foundation. And Lord, that's where we want to put our trust and our hope and our build our lives upon, Lord God, is, is the foundation of you and your word. And Lord, we would pray the prayer that David prayed and say, search me, O God, and know my heart and see if there's any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Lord, we ask that you would search our hearts and point out, Lord, what we, what needs changed, Lord. And Lord, we just ask for the help of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we realize that in our own power and in our own strength, we can't, we can't transform ourselves, Lord. But you can make us new, Lord. And Lord, we, we just acknowledge that when we invited you into our hearts, Lord, just a whole, whole new life began, Lord. You forgave us and gave us salvation, and, and we began a life in you. And Lord, we want to just continue in that, Lord. We want to peel away the next layer of the onion, Lord God, and, and take the next step in following you. And so, Lord, reveal that to us, what our next step is, Lord. And Lord, also just give us wisdom to follow through. Lord, let us join in the community, Lord, of brothers and sisters who will help us with that, Lord, and let us uh, fellowship with you daily, Lord, in prayer and in your word and fasting and seeking your face, Lord, that would, would give us the strength and the knowledge and the wisdom to do what we need to do. Lord, we, we want to be different. We want to be set free from our dysfunctions and from those things that, that uh, would trip us up, Lord. And we know that you, you are able, Lord. So thank you, Lord. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.